Hello, friends. Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. Our guest today has been at the forefront of cutting-edge American literature for the past 50 years, writing shotgun with the likes of William Gaddis, David Foster Wallace, David Markson, and Alexander Theroux, often moving over to the driver's seat when those writers needed some help navigating the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that is the publishing world. I'm talking, of course, about Stephen Moore, whose books include the first serious study of William Gaddis, two massive volumes on the history of the novel, a collection of a lifetime of literary criticism, reviews, and personal essays called My Back Pages, and his latest, From Zero Gram Press, the first book-length study of the amazing author, Alexander Theroux. Stephen Moore, welcome to Feeling Bookish. Stephen Moore, uh, we're so excited to have you on our program. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I want to start, this is a, a... a lifetime of work that in front of us. So there's a lot of uh, many authors that we want to talk about, but I want to start with the beats because I think that's what you indicated you started with as a young man. Um, and also, you know, it, it had an incredible influence on us as well. Um, and I think for a lot of readers, they tend to start with the beats for some reason um, and then go on from there. So can you tell us a little bit about how did you, how did you get into the beats? I mean, what, what kind of attracted you first to the beats? Well, like almost any American teenager years ago, I read On the Road when I was about 18 or 19, and then uh, I loved it. And then right about the same time, I read William Burroughs' Soft Machine, because one of my favorite rock groups of the time was Soft Machine from England, and I wanted to see where they got their name. And that was my first introduction to experimental fiction, because I barely understood what that novel is about. I don't know if you've ever read it. But mm-hmm. but I, I loved it. I just loved the, the weird permutations of language and everything. And since my back my main interest back then was in poetry rather than prose, I was uh, really entranced by someone who was using uh, prose almost like poetry, a kind of weird, brutal prose poetry, but still. Mm-hmm. So, I, uh, so it was those two, basically, and um, actually the main, let's see. And then I found out a little bit uh, later that uh, William Gaddis uh, was part of that beat generation, and right. his friend Chandler Broussard wrote one of the first beat novels. And um, that strange Sherry Martinelli hung out with beats. Mm-hmm. You know, so over my career, I've just been, um, you know, I'm not a hardcore beat fanatic, you know, uh, Ginsburg and Corso and all the rest, even though I've read them all. But it seemed like all the writers I was interested in all seemed to come from that milieu. So over the years, I've been, you know, I've read quite a bit on them. Yeah, it seems like it's like a it's like a little bit of a, a chromosome in our reading DNA. The beats are important because they are, like you said, the, you, when, you, when you write about Gaddis, you make sure that people understand that he was part of this larger milieu. Like you said, um, you know some of the some of those party scenes in the recognitions they go on for what a hundred pages or so are just <laughs> yeah. wonderful. They just wonder like if you, anybody wants a real taste, a real sort of snapshot of what beats. Beat life was like. Um, I think uh, it behooves one to actually read the recognitions just for that, because it's it's yeah. more true. I think the Kerouac in a way. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, as you know, Gaddis was uh, actually a character in uh, the Subterraneans right. by Kerouac. Right. Now right. he, of course, was a bit aloof from all that crowd, and he didn't wear a goatee or you know that, that, <laughs> that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, that that's part of it. Also, what attracted me to the Beats is for a long time until recently, they weren't taken very seriously by the academic community. You know, mostly just fan people writing right. about it. And right. I've always been drawn to underdogs. You know, the great writers who aren't getting the respect and critical attention they deserve. That's why I started writing on Gaddis because 
when I first discovered him in 1975, uh, hardly anything had been written. You know, a few articles and one dissertation, and that was that was it. It's just but, amazing. Uh, it's just it's just mind blowing. Yeah, yes, mm. and most of the writers I've written about since then are underappreciated or little known, or you know. And I've always been kind of a promoter of people who deserve to be better better known, and that that certainly uh, described the beats in some ways. But although by now it's been rectified. Yeah, yeah, there's certainly been a lot of um, a lot of uh, critical work done on the beats, uh, but yeah. it's still. I, I sometimes feel like it's it misses the beat. No, no pun intended there, or maybe pun intended, uh, because because it's 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 got to be outside of academia that you really get that. It, it's important. It's incredibly important to have critical work on writers, but. But the appreciation—it's—it's it's like you're know, embalming them, you know, you know, <laughs> putting well, them it, aside. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think with um, I think you in your in your uh, one of your reviews on the beats, Stephen, you know, you talk about uh, Hemingway's journalism versus Kerouac's art, and you talk about the yeah. audacity of language, and I and I think what's often lost is that um, they they become Kerouac in particular is they they just became bohemian icons and and i think what's lost is the um uh the the language that kerouac um the musicality right his interest in in jazz um oh, and yeah. what is really the what is the poem um about the railroad earth uh i forget the the exact yeah. uh, name of the poem railroad earth yeah my goodness I, I i listen to that and and i feel like i understand my own country in a way that very few artists help me to understand it. Um, oh yeah. So, he really caught yeah. that, that red, red brick America. As he yes. And, uh, and he, he knew yeah, that from yeah. old Massachusetts for sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the language too. Have you ever read old angel midnight by him? Uh-huh. It's, yep. it's, uh, I know Dylan loved a, that. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's approaches Finnegan wake at times. And of course, visions of Cody is visions I mean, of Cody. Extra- yes. Extraordinary language in there. And yet you're right. Most people just treat him as, you know, beatniks who drove fast cars and you know right. that sort of thing yeah and, and Burroughs Burroughs uh I think the writing is incredible but also those ideas those ideas are still <laughs> are still with it we're still yeah. dealing with them you know and I I love like going back and seeing where there's like little little things like you you would enjoy this Stephen the little kind of literary threads like where did where did Burroughs find this whole virus idea the word is virus and I uh-huh. I one of my favorites, a very obscure writer, is a British science fiction writer, Barrington J. Bailey, uh, who was active during the new wave uh, period uh, of science fiction in the 60s and 70s. Uh, uh-huh. He uh, he was read. He was read by Burroughs and was actually credited for, uh, for finding this idea of word as virus um, in Barrington uh-huh. J. Bailey. Um, just obscure science fiction writer who nobody reads nowadays, but everybody should because it's incredible. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. And, Especially nowadays, no, when you hear about disinformation and the spreading of uh, conspiracy theories and all that, I mean, in a way, language has become a virus in the hands yes. of the wrong people. So, yeah, there is a connection there. Yeah, yeah, and we have to make sure that we 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 sort of fight for it. We we get it back, and that yeah. we sort of purify it somehow through our own right. you know, brains. Um, because language has been perverted. I mean, that's one of the themes that I think we would be talking about today in general, uh, the, the sort of the, the self-censorship that goes on right now uh, mm-hmm. of writers not even beginning to even think about what needs to be said because that thinking is is taboo. 
Um, both, you know, we were getting it both from the right and from the left. Uh, the, the right has, you know, it's all fake and it's all she-she humanity stuff. And the left has like, well, it's woke culture. You got to, you know, got to cancel things if they're not right. So we're right, getting right, it from yeah. both sides. And as, as, as humanists, as people who value the word, we really have to hold our ground, I feel like. It feels almost like a, I, I hate the war metaphor, but it's, it's a bit like we're, we're on a hill. We got to defend it from all kinds yeah. of critters. I agree, I agree, yeah. And so I also want to talk to you a little bit about, um, you know, you had this uh, wonderful introduction to Greg Gerke's um, uh, uh, volume of essays, uh, See What I See, uh, where you talk about this um, a more personal approach to uh, criticism and to talking about, about literature. Um, and in your own evolution, I think, um, uh, by your own words, your most favorite sort of essay in my back pages, uh, you can you sort of move from this kind of a standard book criticism language to a more personal, more kind of affecting language that has that that sort of I think really captures readers much more effectively than any kind of um, regular sort of book review. Uh, when you yeah. relate it to yourself, you have to relate it to yourself because it, we are the filters. When you right, it's not it does the stuff doesn't exist out there outside of us it's it, it's it's we are the sort of the resonators and if you yeah, don't I, some of that your own personal thing it tends to be a little arid i think uh-huh uh-huh well mm -hmm. i'm kind of a microcosm of a larger macrocosmic uh progression i mean literary criticism used to be very personal up until you know going back to you know samuel johnson for example really opinionated stuff all the way up until the early 20th century um before the new criticism came in. And then at that point, it's like critics all put on, um, you know, scientists' slab coats mm -hmm. and became very, you know, uh, impersonal. I think that's the word Eliot liked and um, started uh, affecting this almost scientific vocabulary, which even got worse when the theory, you know, hit the fan back in the uh, 70s and all that. Now, and um, and I, I was part of that. You know, I grew up, uh, I went to college in the 70s when new criticism was still being taught. But then I, I, my personally, I just started um, rebelling against that. It was like wearing a coat that was too tight or something. Mm. And then I, uh, luckily, I started writing a lot of book reviews for like the Washington Post, and they want a more relaxed personal style there, not the dry academic stuff. Mm -hmm. So I got kind of used to that. And then when I um, decided to write my history of the novel, I, I did. That's where it really came to uh, came to fruition. Well, yeah, that essay you talk about, but then. That kind of freed me up to write uh, the history of the novel in a very conversational, personal voice. You know, I was going to write that in the standard academic tone, but then I kept, you know, oh, delaying. Oh, thank God you did you know, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I finally said, you know, hell with it. I'm just going to have fun with this thing. I'm going right. to write the way I write to, as emails to other people, except with, you know, lots of footnotes and 40-page bibliographies. You know, and uh, that really liberated my voice, you know, and I just had so much fun uh, writing that. And I thought if I'm having fun, the reader might have fun because there's a, a huge load of information, especially in those two big novel volumes. You know, writers no one's ever heard of, much less read. So I, I, I'm glad I kind of, I was hoping that I, if I'm having fun, they'll have fun. And so, and yeah, it's just, I just, I like to see more critics write that way, you know. Uh, it uh, in the wrong hands, personal navel gazing while literary criticizing could be boring and pretentious and all right. that. But you know, in the hands of David Foster Wallace or you know Hunter Thompson or those kind that kind of writing, 
um, it can be much more enlightening and much more fun. Yeah. Well, I tell you, it's 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 uh, it comes through in your in your in your essays and criticism because it's just not it's it it has that even may, you might not be talking specifically anything about, about anything personal, but your sense of humor comes across. Um, yeah. I mean, some of these reviews are hilarious. Just little, one little line, one little twist, one word placed Thank you. in a certain place, and I'm laughing and I, it, things opening up for me, and I'm like, of course, or uh, something I haven't seen before. Uh, but I love that 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 opening of the laughter. Um, I I in general get get more drawn to um, the yeah you know, the the big books that we all love. But I like the ones that are positive and more f and fun more than the ones that are you know uh, more difficult and sort of um, down. You know the, they're they're just more serious or something like. Yeah. Uh, pensions against the day, my favorite pension and your favorite pension, I believe, from what I've read. Um, you know, first of all, it begins with a wonderful uh, epigraph from Thelonious Monk, who right, you know, right away he had me at that because it's my favorite musician. Um, but then just the, the 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 fun, the anarchic sort of uh, just wonderful loop the loop ride that you get in this novel. Uh, made me smile and laugh so much that people would turn around on the subway and look at me like I'm a madman, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't well, help well, it. That's, that, that's the thing. All my favorite writers, I realize, are funny. You know, yes. Joyce, uh, Pynchon, Gaddis, uh, Theroux, you know. Markson. So I figured, you know, why bring a really sad, serious face to someone, these people who are writing hilarious prose, you know? You don't want to compete with them, you know, but... Still, you know that you want to be, you want to enter into the spirit of the, their works, and if their works are humorous, then you know go for the laughs. <laughs> right, right, and uh, <laughs> so I mean, I mean, like Arnold Schmidt, for instance. I, I just, I whenever I feel, oh, whenever I start taking myself too seriously, I, I go to Arnold Schmidt because he just, he just wakes me up and makes me realize that you can play around with reality. Because it's lexical, our reality is mostly lexical, at least for us bookish type. So if you start playing around and you, you go with a punning sort of multilingual, as you put it, polymorphously perverse prose, it's just so yeah, much yeah. fun, and it renews you. You know, in difficult times, we have difficult times now. We're living through, you know, some dark ages. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so these you know, humor is the best are, medicine, as they say. Yeah. yeah, they're they're like life preservers in a way, you know. And yeah. we have to also remember that Joyce, for instance, Joyce, you know, Ulysses, the most dangerous book back then. It was it was a bomb thrown. It was it was not uh, the the masterpiece that everybody recognizes it nowadays. It was a it was a it was a violent wrenching of the literary world. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so it's it's um. Oh, actually. Let's let's go with Joyce. I mean, you you write that Joyce kind of made you a critic. Yeah, I think you started with sort of Ulysses, like everybody does, and then you got blown away by Finnegan's Wake. You want to tell us a little bit about your your wake your wake head experiences? <laughs> How I got woke into the yes. wake? Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, well, actually, as I as I say somewhere, the very first book of literary criticism I bought was Stuart Gilbert's old book on mm -hmm. uh, Ulysses, which is a very straightforward chapter by chapter, you know. Um, explanation of what's going on. No literary theory, no fancy ideas, just here's what you need to know if you want to enjoy this book. And that, and I started reading, I read that and I started reading a lot of other Joyce criticism, which is similar to that, you know, uh, explication of words and stuff. And that sort of set the pattern in my mind for what criticism should be. So um, not, again, not dwelling in uh, lofty ideas about, the, but, but rather you know, what is this? What does this word in this particular sentence mean? You know, right. If it's a gypsy, a gypsy term or something like that, or what, what's the? So when I started writing about Gaddis, 
that's the first thing I did. I wrote a, a reader's guide to him, you know, just going line by line, identifying all the illusions in it, just the way Joyce critics had done for uh, for, for, for him. And um, so that 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 early immersion in Joyce criticism is what kind of set me on my path because it was all very word specific. There's one book, for example, called Scandinavian Elements in Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> so all they do is they, they give you word lists in Norwegian and the, right. the, the Norse mythology and all that. And I really like that kind of specific stuff rather than, you know, structuralist theories of language and signifiers and all that kind of stuff, you know. So that kind of set my uh, my mode, you know, the Finnegan's Wake criticism. And the very first stuff I ever published was on the Finnegan's Wake. So that's yeah uh joyce the, being the man i am <laughs> well it's the the five notes on finnegan's wake in my back pages i've 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 yeah i've, yeah. I've been calling them five easy pieces uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're short little nothings but still yeah. that's that's uh that's well, not what, nothing that's like like the, yeah. the last one is the it's actually you pick up on one of my favorite little phrasings in the wake then you know i feel spirits of uh itchery ouching out from all over me i just love that line because it oh yeah it, it, in the way it, it talks about the, the the drive to create you know these the spirits of itchery ouching out from all over me and, and just refers to so many other things this kind of as robert anton wilson called it, this hologrammatic prose and i'm sure others others call it that too where you just see so many illusions and different meanings in the same set of letters <laughs> you know yeah yeah just a genius and there, and there are meanings that joyce put in there uh, sometimes critics read things into books that aren't there but you, you can be sure that joyce actually put all that stuff in there and you're paying him homage by doing the work to extract what he put in there, rather than imposing some foreign ideas in there. I think you put some. It. I put you. I think you put your finger on something that's. I, I really wanted to make sure that we touch on. Uh, is is the fact that that uh, we have to trust these quote unquote genius writers. Maybe we shouldn't put them in quotes, but we have to trust that they knew what they were doing. They did not put, and, and Theroux talks about this, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the, the sort of vacuous uh, uh, modern poetry that he's, you know, at least he found some some aspect of it vacuous, meaning that he he put, the, the meaning is there. It's in, there's intention. There's, it's not just a, a word salad and you go find something in it that makes him meaningful, you know, gives, gives you meaning, but it's, it's there. They, it was put yeah. there on purpose. However, and I have to, I have to slightly disagree with the wake because I'm a wake uh, mystic, I guess you would call it, uh, yeah. where, where I think that, that, that he, he broke down language so much to the atoms, you know, he split the atoms, uh, yeah. the ETYMs, um, that you could rearrange it and serve and find meanings that maybe he wasn't aware, like the whole, uh, you know, using the wake as some sort of a, a, a you know Nostradamus kind of text, where you where you find things that are you know relevant to today's world, even though obviously Joyce has been dead for many years, um, that can get out of hand. And I agree with you, but I think it's it's it gives us enough leeway to play and not to feel like did Joyce really mean that or was that just kind of like a, something totally out of my brain? So I think yeah. the wake has yeah. that exceptional quality to it where it's literally as as beckett said it's it's that thing itself it's not it's not about something it is that thing itself yeah yeah well i think there should be a hierarchy of reading the first thing you should do is make sure you understand the book as the author wrote yes. it as he yeah, intended absolutely. you don't want to stop there because that's the intentional fallacy but you want to make sure you understand what they were doing 
And then, yeah, if you want to read other things into it, okay. But I mean, that's one of the things I don't like about a lot of modern critics. They kind of treat the author as if he's an idiot savant, and they're the ones who are going to pick out his unconscious prejudices or homophobia right. or this and that. You know, no, these guys, as you said earlier, they're geniuses. They know what they're doing. <laughs> you don't, yeah. you know, and this condescending attitude that uh, some critics take just drives me up the wall. And you don't want, again, you can, yeah, I'm no mystic. I, uh, but you, as long I was as being, I was being range, facetious a little bit. Okay, okay, but uh, yeah, you want to at least, as I said, be sure you first understand all the work that what the author was intentionally saying. And for some writers like Joyce, that could take a lifetime. You know, yes, you well several lifetimes. Work on that before you start putting your own stuff in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's. I mean, I've, I discovered the wake when I was 18, and I I am still uh, wallowing in it, and I still I still I I have a daily habit of uh, well, semi daily of, of reading it out loud, a page or two. Uh, it rejuvenates me. It, uh, it inspires me. I don't understand everything, of course, but I trust my my sort of um, uh, unconscious to get a lot of the things that my conscious mind, which is really puny, we think we're in the driver's wheel. But I think it's ridiculous. There's so much underneath, under the surface, which is why these books t speak to us. These maximalists yeah. with everything in it, they they op they they speak to that deep iceberg that's buried underneath our conscious minds, and 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 we so we talk in these unconscious nods to each other across centuries. Sometimes uh, I just, mm. you know, this this kind of reading is just um, renews you. Uh, I, I hope when you read aloud, you read it in an Irish accent. That's the ah. key to understanding Finger's Wake. Read it with an out loud with an Irish accent, and you'll hear try all the, the puns. Yeah, yeah, I will try that. I mean, I already have an accent, but uh, you know, <laughs> this is my third language, so I, I I struggle with it as it is. Actually, I think it helped me that uh, I, I came to English as kind of a uh, almost an adult uh, because oh. I had to unpack it for myself and and make make it my own as opposed to being born with it. But I am I am jealous. You know, with you and Rob, uh, people were like, just the idioms just come to you. Uh, you know, I have to sometimes think about them a little bit. <laughs> and sometimes yeah, they're the wrong idioms. You, uh, you said something earlier about the unconscious of language, and that's every language has that, those, those unspoken idioms that you just grow up with. And it's mm -hmm. hard to convey in any other language or explain to anyone. Right, right. Which is like sometimes a Russian word comes to me before an English one does, and and I don't understand why. But you know, it's because I spent my f the first six, seven years of my life in Saint Petersburg, so that it's buried underneath there, you know, underneath my my Hebrew, which came later, and then <laughs> the English, which came even later. But uh, it it just kind of bubbles up, and actually, it helps with, uh, of course, multilingualism helps with a lot of these books, but with Joyce especially. Uh, yeah. I sometimes read things out loud, and it's just like he starts swearing in Russian, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rob, you've been awfully quiet. You want to jump in here a little bit? Oh, I've just been uh, in enjoying the conversation. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, Roman kind of touched upon, um, you know, the one of the sub themes that we often talk about is this idea of the total novel or the encyclopedic novel. And um, I think you, you had a, a really great uh, definition in one of your reviews. You talked about the, you know, the maximalist novel, which emphasizes the language, and the uh, minimalist novel, which is really focused on character action. And I, I'd, I'd never really thought of it that way. Um, and you know, in looking at uh, Theroux and his, um, you know, his essay on literature, uh, Meta Friests. I'm, I'm sure I got that wrong. I'm sure you'll correct me, Stephen. Uh, but I, I wonder if you could, you know, speak a little bit about. Um, his point of view in that essay, and and uh, he talks about you know the plague of 
monoglots and verbal slugs, which I love. Um, maybe just a little bit about Theroux and, and his his uh, relationship with you know minimalist writers or minimalist writing. Well, it's a static statement, really. You know. Yeah. Well. Uh... As you said earlier, yeah, minimalist is great if you're just talking about actions, but if you're dealing with thoughts and you want uh, to use language for that, and I guess the rule feels that the larger your language is, or the greater your vocabulary is, the, the more precise you can articulate those thoughts that you want to, uh, to uh, pass along to the reader. And uh, yeah, he, and it's just fun in uh, using that, that kind of language. He, he feels like... It's kind of hard to explain. Uh, uh, he talks about the hero often, and in in uh, that essay, oh, it's, it's pronounced Metaphrastes. I'm pretty sure. That's oh, it. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, he talks about uh, all the uh, heroes in literature are, are great speakers. You know, and everyone from Beowulf to uh, the, you know, Homer's characters and Satan in uh, Paradise Lost. So for him, language is power, and it's it's, it's uh, sophistication. It's a way of uh, dominating others in some ways, and it's a way of, you know, the, the richer your language is, the more powerful you you are in a sense, and not not physically, but um, it's it's a form of power for him, you know. And sometimes he uses that for ill because he's uh, he can be a very vicious writer and yes. you know, the worst put downs <laughs> in history, you know. So the language can be used for derogatory effects, but it can also be used for great, you know, celebrations of this and that. Darkenville's cat, for example, has the most celebratory pains to pains, if I'm pronouncing it right, to love and all that. Mm. And he can do that because he has the language. He has 500 years of English, you know, stored in his head, um, going back to Sydney and the romant uh, the Renaissance poets, and he can unfurl that at great lengths. And so. Um, yeah, for him, language is you know something to exult in. It's not something you minimalize. I mean, you know, why only use you know 500 words when you can use 2,000 if you're you know, right. uh, if you're trying to get that something more than just superficial. You know, someone sitting in a kitchen, you know, worrying about how they're going to pay the rent or something like that. If that's all you want to convey, well, then fine. You can use a minimalist tone. But if you're doing you know anything beyond that, you want to have the language to be able to support you. It's like a musician who can play you know, any instrument in the orchestra. I mean, that's anyone who could do that could, it certainly has greater uh, mater- uh, power at his or her sure. tips than someone who can just play the clarinet. You know, and, and Theroux is, in one sense, an orchestral writer. He, you know, he can play all the instruments in the orchestra. And how? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, there's a there's a little uh, little poem in his collected poems that I, I but which, by the way, I really really enjoy I'm enjoying his poems. I know you put them kind of you have an interesting take on them because a lot of them are are just you know something that uh, other poets uh, would not touch with a ten foot line, as you say. Um, <sighs> but there's one little poem where he says, "It's not that I'm smart; it's that you know the rest of you guys are dumb." <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's basically yeah. saying, look, I'm not that smart. I just, you know, I see these words. I use them. You just don't see these words. You don't read. You know, it's not that I'm yeah, not particularly yeah. smart. It's just I have all these things at my disposal. Why not use it? You sure, know, sure. it's like, you know, if you've got a million dollars in the bank, you know, you can let it sit there or you can use it and go have fun with it. Oh, and he's a spendthrift. Him, Absolutely. You know, yes. Language <laughs> is like a, a, a big check for him. Yeah. No, he's, he's whimsic. For sure. You know, you know, Stephen. Um, one other question about um, Metaphrastes. So, 
he seems to be making this interesting parallel with the, the, the writer as a kind of divine person or divinely inspired or, or maybe from a, you know, a, a, a priesthood in a way. And, and I know he has a, a Catholic background and he, he seems to contrast the maximalist writer as a, you know, a sacred priest versus the minimalist writer as uh, at some point he seems to compare him to like, uh, you know, uh, John Calvin, which he calls the Genevan <laughs> wood, Woodcock. And I, I, I guess my question is, you know, how Catholic was he? Um, I know that it sounds like he went to maybe the minor seminary briefly after high school. Um, and, any thoughts on that influence on him? Yeah, a couple things. You remember Stephen Dedalus says uh, the artist is a, a priest of art. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, Joyce was a, uh, used to be a Catholic. So there's a whole tradition of that, of uh, Catholicism and its rich liturgies and language and uh, all that. So uh, that idea of the art, artist as a priest, you know, uh, is something that Theroux definitely feels. Um, yeah, he was like a typical high school kid in uh you know, in Boston up until he's about 18, 19. For some reason, then he took, he went into, um, he took vows and he wanted to become a monk for the rest of his life. So he joined a silent uh, order, the Trappists, I believe. And the then he uh, went to another order for a year or two. So between 18 and 21 or so, he was a, a silent monk. He learned sign language back then because that's how monks communicate. He put that down on his uh, resume once uh, among languages. He put down sign language. <laughs> And so, and and so, uh, and he's still very devout. Yeah, I mean, he's um, unlike Joyce; he's never renounced it. Uh, he has his doubts about the Old Testament God, and he makes fun of certain aspects of the New Testament. But deep down, he uh, is remains a devout Catholic to this day. And that, you know, I think that influences his whole attitude towards um, people and life and uh, celibacy and pr- uh, promiscuity. Um, uh, he's, he's rather has conservative values, moral values, um, which again is rooted in the church. The uh, church is always very conservative. So yeah, that's had a huge, huge influence on him. Um, well, you play some, you play some, you play some, uh, you said, you say that you were initially sort of miscategorized him, putting him together with all these maximalists, you know, postmodern uh, people. Uh, but he's actually, when you, when you sort of reclassified him in your mind as a more of a cons- conservative uh, writer using, you know, older forms um, and really older words, <laughs> much older words, yeah, you yeah. know, so he suddenly kind of clicked for you. Is that is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I read Darkonville right after reading uh, Mulligan Stew by Gilbert Sorrentino. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever read that, but that's sure. just a, you know, an uproarious parody of language and everything. And, and Darkonville has these, um, you know, little platelets inside of them and lists and all that, just like Sorrentino. So my original grouping was he was like one of those kind of people or like uh, Nabokov with his pale fire. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of thing through would have written or could have written. So but then I realized, yeah, he's in later years. uh, He's a very linear writer. He doesn't jump around back and forth in time. He's uh, conservative. Um, His favorite novelist of all time is Dickens. You know, wow. so he, he he sees himself almost like in an old-fashioned uh, tradition like that. I mean, he does also, you know, uh, evoke Tristram Shandy and a few other experimental writers. Some of the weirder, you know, Baron Corvo, for example, and Ronald Furbank, and both of whom were Catholic, now that I think about this. Mm-hmm. I didn't, had my wits about me. I could have made, made, tied all this together 30 years ago. Um, 
So yeah, but he still sees himself as you know. So I write chapters that go you know chronological order. He, he's he's a weird conventional writer, if you want to put it that way. But he does follow <laughs> more conventional forms more often than I than I realized. You know, I was I was wondering I was asking Rob if if um, if he knew of any um, specifically Catholic criticism or coming you know on from the Catholic world uh, about Theroux because you would think they would have a lot to say. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Because you're you're an atheist, not... right, Stephen? I mean, you you say in the book that you don't really have a way yeah. of approaching this too much because you're you're an atheist, so you don't really know where he's coming from with this with this Catholic stuff. Yeah, well, I've, I was when I was younger, I was fascinated by Catholicism just by the whole artistic uh, aspect of it. That mm -hmm. so was Joyce. Joyce used to love going to the oh, mass, yeah. the pageantry just, of the mass. The, yes. Yeah, yes. for the for the aesthetic structure and yes. of uh, it's a very art. Of course, not to mention all the artworks, but it just. It's uh, like Catholicism is like some complicated work of art in one sense. And in my 20s, I remember reading a lot about Catholicism and all the crazy saints they have and all the, you know, the, the excommunications, the whole dark side of Catholicism, you know, the occult and all that. So it was all fascinating to me, but only in an intellectual way. No, I've been an atheist since I was a teenager. So, and that, that part of it. When you reached the age of reason? <laughs> what's, what's that? When you reached the age of reason, you became an atheist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's the other thing. All these other writers I like, uh, I'm sure Gass, Gaddis, uh, they're, they're atheists. Robert Coover, I'm sure, is. In fact, yeah. It's, so it's weird that, um, again, that is another miscategorization, you know, putting devout through with all these uh, heretics. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I almost wonder if, um, you know, um, when the, the, the Catholic Church after the Second Vatican Council, they went from the Latin liturgy to the, the mass in the vernacular. And I, I'd had a, a kind of pocket theory that that had impacted uh, Catholic writers because of what you're alluding to. The, they were no longer exposed to that massive sensory experience of with, you know, uh, incense and this foreign language. Um, I mean, I, if if I could speak to Theroux, I'd I'd love to ask, you know, if that had a significant impact on him when, you know, the church moved in that direction in the, I think it by the mid to late sixties they had. Kind yeah, of and I'm sure got, he, he's one of these people who thinks that the Vatican II was all a big mistake. You know, oh, that's interesting. Well, yeah, that's yeah, considering really his cons conservative nature, I, I would I would believe that's that would be the case. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm. So. But yeah, it's still work to be done. I mean, it's just this. This is an amazing author. I mean, let's, your book is is subtitled "A Fan's Notes." I mean, you 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 write um, that uh, that David Markson uh, put your your remark about this book, and you wanted to be buried with this book clasped to your heart. Uh, Markson, who's one of my favorites, he actually put it in in uh, this is not a novel, right? In one of his note card court uh, novels. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's that's. You must have been tickled. I mean, pink. I mean, it's just amazing. It's just amazing to have that. I know you was your friend. You guys corresponded, oh, yeah, yeah. talked, but uh, it's just amazing to actually be be in one of his books. I mean, it's uh, incredible. <laughs> yeah, and I, and as I say in the footnote, I don't know if he was making fun of me for making such a <laughs> passionate remark. You know, literary critics don't talk like that. We don't. Have you ever read any literary critics say he wants to be buried with a book in his? I wish I I wish there were more people like that. Yeah. Though. So he may have been making fun of me, but still, I was. Um, yeah, I was delighted. Yeah, boy. I'm yeah, well, Martin, with, with Markson's Martin humor, Walmart. such a humor. I mean, it's 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 a it's an honor to be made fun of by Markson. And <laughs> exactly, I, since I have exactly. you here, Stephen, I have to ask you because. Well, let me let me stop right there. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, I bet Markson was jealous. I mean, what what author would not want to hear that about him? <laughs> right. So he may have been 
he may have been okay. It's kind of it sounds silly, kind of jejun, but you know, every author would love to have a fan like that. Well, <laughs> I think I, I am one of those fans of Markson's that uh, I, I would, I'm going to go on record. <laughs> He's listening from heaven. I would like to be buried or cremated or whatever is done with my remains with a copy of Springer's Progress, my favorite. Oh, yeah. book. Isn't, that, isn't that a delightful one? Oh my everyone God. Talks about I, I, I keep yeah, trying to talk about his other books, but that's, that's yeah. such a delight. Yeah, it it yeah. really is. It, it takes delight in life and in language. And you just yeah. can't ask for more. And in and in just the, the physical delight of being physically alive, of touching people, of sex. The way you write about it is just it's just beautiful, uh, Stephen. I just love your your Springer's Progress uh, stuff. Because oh, like I said, you. it's one of my, my favorites. And I, I didn't see this kind of writing about this, but I, this book is kind of ignored. You know, even people talk about yeah. Marx, they talk about the note card quartet. Um and, and and Wittgenstein mistress, you know, with the big DFW quote about it being the high point of American experimental fiction. Uh, sure. but, but I came to Springer's Progress. It opened up. I, I just I just loved it. I felt like I was falling <laughs> to heaven, you know. Yeah, I think that's where he really found his voice, because his first novel going down was very indebted to Malcolm Lowry and to the recognitions. And that was, in one sense, Markson's homage to them. But with uh, Springer, he finally came into his own voice and that um, liberated him. Just as I was saying, that uh, I self-liberated myself when I started writing my novel history. You know, if you let yourself have fun and express your real personal, rather than writing the way you think other people want you to write, it can be very liberating. You know, I'm sure a lot right. of know that, but that, that's not emphasized enough. It's liberating, but it also doesn't doesn't quite work for the market, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, not always. Exactly. Not always. Exactly. I love I love the line from Theroux where he talks about mystic, the mystical passivity in refusing the entrepreneurial. You know, it's kind of like almost like an excuse for him not to. Well, it's not an excuse, but it's it's a. I've always felt that way. I don't. Yeah, I've always kind of fought against the the, the business of business, as as one of the presidents said. You know, America's business is business, uh, and it's just so ugly. It's it, it twists everything. Yeah. It's it's you know, uh, you know Jesus says you have to uh, choose between God and Mammon, and uh, I think writers also have to. God being you know pure artistic creativity, or Mammon being the marketplace. You know, you, some writers can do both. You know, Pinson can write the novels he does and still make, you know, be, show up on the bestseller list, but most writers have to choose one or the other. Yeah. Right. I mean, the, David Foster Wallace was, I mean, that was an anomaly, Infinite Jest. I mean, oh, published yeah, a major yeah. publisher and a huge success. Critical and, that, and, and that, that shocked me. When he showed me the manuscript, I thought, a, who in the world is going to publish this thing? <laughs> and the second, who in the world? Is, I, I thought it was great. I loved it. But, you know, it's just like me and, you know, 300 other people might like it. I, I That really shocked me. And I was so delighted for it. But still, yeah, who, who you can't can't make this stuff up. <laughs> no, no, but you can't predict it and you just can't control it. Obviously, it's just one of those things. But what do you think about in general? It seems like, you know, I mean, it's it's been bemoaned too long, maybe. And maybe we need a new perspective. But it seems like... Uh, the novel has moved you know, from the heyday of these maximalist novels when you were swimming around in this wonderful ocean in the mid seventies and with all these the behemoths, you know, um, it seems like the relevance of these kinds of books is shunted to the side as the culture itself seems to be myopically staggering around in this haze of social media and, and, and this echo land of people agreeing and or disagreeing with each other very vociferously, but it's just all, this kind of homogenous, homogenous kind of mess. And so it's hard to 
be relevant nowadays as a, as a writer, as a novelist. I mean, David Foster Wallace really tried, you know, he really put the sort of the, the, the satire a little to the side and said, this is, this is the real stuff I'm talking about here. This is sad. You should be sad. You should be able to experience all these emotions. And people yeah. paid attention. He was. He wrote. He published that in 1996, right when the internet was starting to take over. Yeah, yes. and I, since then, you know, obviously people still write huge novels. I, I keep seeing them, and usually I try to buy them, and they're not as good as the ones that came out in the, in the 70s. You know, the great, you know, J.R. Mm. and Gravity of Rainbow. You know, the, the heyday, the public burning by Coover. Uh, yeah, the, and Barth's magnificent yeah, novels. Yeah. But still, you know, people are still writing them. But yeah, who's they require such a huge commitment of time, though, and it seems like so many people spend so much time online nowadays, you know, as social media well, and all the blogs and all that. I don't know where they would find time to read these things. Well, that's, that seems to be the, the, the key uh, for me is, is the, the attention. Where do, you, where do you invest your attention? And in fact, do we have these, these abilities now to stretch that attention beyond the, the soundbite, beyond the tweet? Um, to these longer forms that require more subtle thinking, more, more subtle approach, and also, like you said, investment of time, uh, but also attention. Our attention just seems to be so fragmented that it's oh, yeah. like I, when I, whenever I spend too much time online uh, in social media, I get I know that I get a little bit depressed, even though I make some wonderful connections and interesting ideas pop up everywhere. But this attention, the scattering of attention. Uh, takes away from my quality of life. And so I, I turn things off and I usually, you know, restart my, my, my day, so to speak, with Finnegan's Wake, a page of that, and then go on to read something. I, I like sort of a more Whitmanesque approach, like Whitman used to read, you know, he would sit around in some room and he would have five or six books around him and he'd pick up one book and read a few lines or maybe something longer and then pick up another book. Uh, yeah. But with book, book, with big books, we, you can't really do that. But it, the whole big book provides you that whole experience within, you know, one one volume of just picking and choosing various things as you go along, because the writer keeps throwing these various things at you. Um, yeah. Can I just mention Fred Exley's book because it's a subtitle of your book. Uh, Alexander Theroux, a fan's notes. We did a program on, on this podcast on the fan's notes because oh, I, wanted, okay. I wanted Rob to read it. He hasn't read it. And I, in my experience, not that many people have read it. Um, and I believe it, Gaddis is the one who turned me on to him because he included him in his um, course at Bard College, I believe, uh, on the course on failure. I think that was yeah, one of the he, books. Yeah. He, he did do that. I, I, I knew about it apart from him because... Hmm. Yeah, yeah the, as you know, the book is very, very popular 40, 50 years ago. So I, I heard about it somewhere many times. I finally read it. So um, I used that subtitle because I, I wanted to emphasize, first of all, my Theroux book is kind of personal. This isn't a, you know, uh, definitive study of Alexander Theroux. You know, it's mm. just you know, a fan's notes. You know, here's some stuff I've written over the years. Here's some new stuff. Also, they, you know, fans are more, they worship their uh, idols stronger than anyone, but they can also hate their idols stronger mm -hmm. than anyone. You know, if their team is doing bad, you know, they, they feel much more than most people do. And my reaction to through has gone that way um, over the years. It started off, you know, very, you know, uh, enthusiastic, you know, clasping his book to my heart in my coffin. Mm -hmm. But then over the years, you know, they kind of waned and, you know, he's, um, so it's kind of a, a, a story of my 
fandom about Theroux, as well as being, I try to be fairly objective in my criticism and provide a lot of information that I think readers will find interesting. But lurking behind that is that kind of the story of my the rise and fall of my fandom mm. for mm. him. So that's, that's why I chose that, uh, that title. No, it's, it's, it's wonderful because it, that book really in, invokes that, that feeling of, and I'm using the word feeling because it's, uh, you use that word just now. And, and, you know, whenever, whenever we talk about books, really feelings come up often before yeah. any kind of, any kind of sort of mind work starts working, you know, conceptualizing the feelings come first. And I, you know, we, started this let me, let me stop you right there yeah. let me, i've got a got a quote ee e. cummings oh yeah he said since feelings come first who cares for the syntax of things ah beautiful i love it and that's yeah that's that's why i like cummings too you know feelings come first and who cares about the syntax you know who cares if you you know work out the word order and all that feelings right. come first yeah and first you okay, feel so it I'm, and fall <laughs> so i'm sorry go ahead go ahead no, 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 please, we, we, we're just talking. Like I said, you know, first you feel, then you fall. Um, oh, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah that Your too, choice. sometimes. From the wake. Um, but this, this again, it goes back to the personal approach, but it, it, even before the whole personal approach, because we we react to fiction with our emotions first. It, it captures yeah. our, I mean, we talk about things being you know, thrilling by a book, where flames are incites, it's our imagination. Um, all these feeling words. And, you know, when we started this podcast, we really just wanted to continue our lifelong conversation because Rob and I grew up together, uh, not too far from where Theroux was born in Medford. We grew up in, in oh. Peabody, um, Massachusetts, another suburb of Boston. Um, we've had these conversations since we're, you know, about 14 years old. And so we, yeah. because we were living, you know, far away from each other, we kind of wanted to continue this conversation and we started just talking to each other and recording it for some reason because everybody, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry has a podcast now. So we like, oh, let's have a podcast. <laughs> and, but people have reacted. This, this, this idea of, of approaching fiction emotionally first and then what you do is incredible because you have the, the little bit of the emotion, but you bring everybody down to earth. You give context. You give a wider picture of why people should read somebody. Um, and it, it's missing from our, uh, it's something that Chris Villa does very well. Um, yeah, yeah. He's great. Yeah. He just, he's got an incredible mind. He breaks things down. Um, something that we can only aspire to because we approach it, I think more from a feeling, at least I do from a feeling first, uh, maybe because I'm Russian Jewish or something. I have this kind of, I don't know, weird approach to it. Um, and then I, then I like to analyze things, but I, I always come back to this feeling this this is fans fans know because you have this, this it's it's irrational it's unreasonable a lot of times you know it's that's one that's one more thing i don't like about a lot of modern criticism mm -hmm. you, you don't get that sense that these critics even like the books they're writing about there's no feeling there. there's no enthusiasm it's, they're they're very it's a very dryly scientific approach and yeah, you know, I kind of wonder if these people even enjoy reading novels sometimes. But, right, and don't you think right. that that if you don't have that kind of approach in your criticism, then you're not going to infect the people reading your criticism. You have to infect yeah. them again with that virus metaphor. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I've always um, seen myself more as an advocate. Yeah, you know, I want I want to sell these authors to people. I don't want to just simply comment on them for my fellow academics to read about. You know, right, you want others to read it. exactly. You want others to read it. That's the most thing. That's like the, the thing that gives you joy. You want others to share your joy. Yeah, right. yeah, and it probably comes from my background too. And I, for many years, I was a bookseller, and for many years, I was a publisher. And both of those, uh, you're trying to 
you know, you're trying to sell books to people. You're trying to get people to pay attention to it. You're not just dispassionately analyzing them from afar. You know, you, you want to do something with these books, you know, get people to read them. So I think that's kind of the engine behind a lot of my uh, criticism. Absolutely. You know, um, Stephen, we, in our intro, we, we touched upon your early involvement with David Foster Wallace and, and uh, how your, your past crossed and, um, I guess two questions that I'm I'm kind of really eager to to ask you. One is if you happen to read um, the biography "Every Love Story Is a Ghost Story" that came out, and if you recognize the person you knew in that book. And then I guess the second part of the question is, at least in the social media world of book Twitter, you know, Infinite Jest and David Foster Wallace has kind of become. Um, uh, you know, stereotyped as a book for, you know, geeky adolescent boys, maybe even boys who have a misogynist streak. And it puzzles me, um, you know, how, how that's come to be. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, what your sense of his reputation now and in the years to come. Okay. Uh, answer to the first question is yes and no. <laughs> yes, I did read that biography. And no, I was <clears throat> quite shocked at some of the things I'd learned about David in that biography. Around me, he was always very kind of polite and deferential. You know, I was 10 years older than him, and he just treated me that way. So when I read about him, you know, uh, being physically abusive to women and, and, and some of the lies he was telling, that really shocked me. I, I didn't, that's not the person I knew. Uh, so that was a, an eye-opener. Um, in fact, I, I learned that he actually lied to me a few times. He told me that, for example, he had never read Pynchon when he uh, wrote his first novel, and turns out he did. You know, so <laughs> I was that that kind of hurt hearing uh, and hearing some of those other things he did. Um, as far as the the second question about I that novel is uh, Infant Jest has so, you know so many aspects to it that to dismiss it as, you know, a geek boy, you know, whatever your the description you gave to it, I think is just really small minded and uh, missing the whole point. Uh, he's had so much to say about you know, society and addiction and which is still very relevant. He, uh, he uh, threaded that uh, combination of feelings that you're, you're talking about, Roman was talking about a minute ago, as well as high intellection. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got both of them. It's not just a sloppy feeling book. It's, it's not just a dry, arid book, intellectual book. He's got, somehow he managed to get both going on. And the language is so glorious that even though I don't care what he's writing about, anyone who uses the language like that, I'll, I'll, be, I'll read them. You know, they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, again, uh, he has so much to say uh, about you know loneliness and isolation and you know, self consciousness about being how you others perceive you. I mean, those are universal values, especially even more important nowadays. And the um, the novel has so many riches to it and all that that anyone who dismisses it is not someone I'd want to know. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I you know. Like, for example, Joseph Frank, who who wrote these uh, several volumes about the life of Dostoevsky, he wrote that um, David Foster Wallace was the most perceptive reader of his Dostoevsky project. Um, oh, you know, I didn't know that. But yeah, which, which says volumes um, about just, again, the, the kind of mind and the kind of sensitivity he had uh, towards things. Oh, yeah. He was incredibly smart. I mean, the smartest person I've ever known. Um 
but w- w- without um, showing off. You know, he wasn't like uh, what's, who's that Sheldon on The Big Bang Theory. Oh yeah, he wasn't. Yeah. He wasn't that kind of. Uh, but he was just really knowledgeable about, it. and it, it really comes through in his essays and his everything else. Yeah, he's a very smart guy. He he put that down on his resume. He sent it to me back in like 1982 or so. And uh, on the second page of the resume, he says, I'm really, really smart. <laughs> <laughs> and for him, for him, that was just stating a fact. He wasn't boasting. He's, he was very, very smart. Yeah, yeah. And um, again, that's one of the uh, great things about that novel. I mean, it's just so smart, but, um, you know, not in a, uh, you know, officious way or something. Or ostentatious. Way. Well, maybe it is ostentatious. Who cares? I mean, it's, it's such a great novel that... You've got to adjust yourself to that rather than expect him to adjust to your views. You know, you, um, Gaddis has something a line in there about uh, Edward Bass saying, you, you got to raise yourself to Mozart's level. Don't drag Mozart down to your level. Mm-hmm. And when I hear the kind of criticism you're talking about, I, I hear people trying to drag him down to their level. And again, that's just the wrong attitude to take, I think. Yeah. Well, you talk about Gaddis as... as uh, one, I think one of the last essays about Gaddis in my back page is as, as a hero of our time. He should be celebrated as a hero of our time for his moral courage, for, for his uncompromising spirit, um, even though you know, his first book was ignored. Uh, it took him years of having to work in corporations. Uh, before, you know, he, just, he was just cr- crushed by, by the this, this system that he was writing about, um, this noble yeah. failure. Um, which became kind of the motif, the lead motif of of his life in a way. Um, I think it sound, looks like it really crushed David Foster Wallace uh, in a horrible way. Um, and yet, and yet, you know, we keep on, we keep on, keep on going. We keep on. Theroux keeps on going. You know, he's he's also been yeah. crushed by the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, but you know, it's, it's interesting how different writers kind of react to it. I think Gaddis, uh, for me, is because he kind of opened up that, that, that maximalist world. Though, truth be told, I think I read David Foster Wallace before Gaddis. Um, I came to Gaddis through his legal novel, his third novel. Uh, and then I realized what, a, what an idiot I've been not reading him all this time. Um, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so well, we, all, we all find out about him at different times. You know, you can't blame yourself for that. But uh, yeah, actually, that that the, the frolic of his own, that legal novel, that's almost become my favorite. That was his, yes, his last, yes. and it's just so funny and so smart, and as as are all all of his novels. But um, he wrote that when he was much older, and he had, I think, a you know, more mature attitude towards the world. The recognitions is the, the writings of a very angry young man, yes, you know, just young man's spitting at everything, and. And Jr. is about some guy, people, you know, what it's like to be in their 40s and 50s and realizing life is escaping from your hands. But he had some kind of equanimity by the time he was uh, writing Frolic of His yeah. Own. He had won yeah. two, uh, one National Book Award. He had the MacArthur Foundation. That sense of failure that he had in the early days, he triumphed over. He didn't simply overcome it. He triumphed over it. And uh, there's something about all that that enters into the fabric of a Frolic of His Own. That's why, it's, like I said, I think it's become... It's not as great as JR, but it's no. But, you, but I think it's because it's his first novel that I read. It also happens to be my favorite. And in general, Stephen, I don't know what it is, but I, I, you know, I started reading in the in the mid '80s uh, as I was growing up, uh, and through the years, I started noticing your name here and there. 
you know, because I would oh. just follow my my sort of my intuition, my literary nose, as Rob will tell you. I kept on recommending books to him. I kept on sort of finding these things kind of on my own because there was no internet, no, I didn't read the papers. I was, you know, I was just kind of like, would go to the bookstore and, and see what those fat books look like. Um, <laughs> and, but I kept on coming across your name and it's just, it's, it's like our tastes are ridiculously matched. And so I loved whatever you would, whenever you would have a review or some blurb or something like that, I would just glom onto it right away because, and this was, this, you know, this is before my back pages, before all this stuff. Um, oh. uh, I, before I was aware of, of, you know, of, of, you know, the literary world as such, because uh, I just, you know, you feel isolated as a reader for the, for the majority of the time, unless you're a publisher or an editor or something like that. Um, right. But I kept seeing your name. And, and so I, I would like to canonize you if that's okay with you. I mean, I know you're not, dead, <laughs> but uh, atheists, think, atheists don't get canonized, but you know please that. it's in your name. <laughs> it's Saint even Saint even more. So <laughs> it's in your name. As, uh, so come for the book talk and stay for the canonization here at Feeling Bookish Podcast. Because I really, I really, um, I, I look up to you at this point. Of 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 uh, you, you've got the you've got the, the the literary nose that I think I aspire to. Um, well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say so. It, it's it's simply the truth. Um, and so let's talk about a little bit uh, before we. I mean, it's already been almost an hour, you guys. But Jim Gower, can you tell us a little bit about Jim Gower and Novel Explosives? It's a book that that blew my mind when I read it last year, and there's a new edition with a wonderful after afterward by Chris Via, who kind of really breaks the book down and makes you. Does, he does a lot of a little bit of what you do so well, putting things in context and. And still giving a little bit of that. There's a little bit of funny things in there in the in the afterward. So I, I love that approach. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about this? Because to um, me, it's a bit mysterious. This guy, Jim Gower, he's a publisher. Yeah, uh, he is now. Yeah, I, I got a letter from him about four or five years ago. He had started reading the second volume of my novel history, and he says uh, he wrote to me and said that he really liked it, and he had a novel of his own that he was thinking about publishing, and he wondered if he could send it to me and get my opinion. It's as simple as that. So um, I always say yes to those things. I think I'd be a diva to say no, even though a lot of stuff I get sent isn't that good. But anyway, so I told him, yeah, I should go ahead and send it. And I started reading it, and I told him, wow, this is really great. This is really great. And... Um, so that's where it kind of started. And he, at the time, he was going to publish it with Green Integer, but they have this really small format. Have you ever seen any of their books? Yeah, I was just talking about before I started recording. I was telling the guys that I remember the Green Integer books. They had a special kind of format. A very, they felt really good in your hands or something. I don't know. Yeah, and yeah. well, Jim's book is you know seven hundred pages it's not long. Not small. He, he didn't think. Yeah, so he he was thinking about starting his own imprint under Green Integer. Doug Messerly said it was okay. So uh, so that's how he decided. So he went ahead and uh, I encouraged him. Well, I, no, he was going to do it anyway, I think. But <laughs> anyway, he published the, the book with Green uh, with uh, Zero Gram. And he wanted to add a few more books to his list. So he asked me if I had anything that uh, he could have or a reprint or something. And it just so happened I'd spent the previous uh, year compiling my, uh, my back pages, all the essays and reviews, just in case I ever had a chance to publish it. And wow, here's opportunity knocks. <laughs> so I told him what I had. He said it sounded great, and uh, so that's how that got published. And um, uh, let's see. And then, then, yeah, two years later, I finished writing that Theroux book, and asked if he'd be willing to publish that, and he did. So, but yeah, it's, it's a wonderful novel. I mean, the, the he's one of the few errors. I was 
talking earlier, but I don't quite see too many big novels anymore that remind me of the great ones in the 70s. But this, this one is does. one of them, yeah. novel explosives, yeah. And um, I've read it two, three times now, and every time I, I read it, I like it more. And uh, yeah, I just saw the new cover the other day on online, and it's a great new cover. I'm glad Chris, I read Chris's uh, afterward. So I'm really glad that that book is catching on. You know, it, it really deserves to be... Uh, it is. It is, and we'll, we'll keep. We'll keep. I think we'll do an episode uh, just on that book because it it, it certainly requires uh, some some singular attention. Uh, but it is. It's having a bit of a moment, just like Gaddis with all the Gaddis reissues. I I don't know if it's oh, yeah. just because because we are you know looking for this stuff and it's you know, confirmation bias type of deal. But it seems like not just because of the reissues, but in general, Gaddis is 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 coming into his own and and sort of dragging this whole maximalist tradition with him into the new era. Um, and then this Jim Gower comes along and sort of renews it. Um, but it, it, I, I would like to think that there's some sort of a momentum going on for these for these books and for these authors. And I really want people to know about Alexander Theroux and not just know about him, but read him because um, uh, the, my vocabulary is just getting so much better. I'm laughing. I, I love the, the poetry section in your book uh, on, on Taru. I know it's not his major works. I am saving Dark and Riddle's Cat. Uh, I've read a, a bunch of it, but I really want to sort of tackle it on my own. Um, yeah. uh, I just I just finished uh, where he mentions. Uh, I, I I sort of I have the part of this joke religion discordianism where we worship the goddess Eris, you know, the goddess of chaos. And of course, it's in Darkenville's cat. Eris is in the book, so right away it makes it a book that I that will be personally meaningful to me uh, on a bunch of levels because he mentions the goddess that I kind of jokingly worship. Um, yeah, yeah. No, that's a fantastic novel. So I, I wish you well. I wish I could read that again for the first time. That was just such a joyous experience. Isn't that that kind of yeah. a weird thing that we all kind of wish we had this kind of virgin reading experience of something that we <laughs> liked like that? Isn't that something? I mean, has anybody written oh, yeah. about that? The first reading again. I think where the feeling is more important than the than the brain. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, there's the, the novelty of it and all that. Publishers Weekly has this uh, weekly interview of new uh, uh, inner uh, authors, and that's the last question they always ask: Is there any book you wish you could read again for the first time? Mm. So I think that that is a kind of common uh, you know, feeling. You know, there's cer certain books are so exhilarating that uh, it's like falling in love for the first time or something. You know? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that's a common feeling. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Any any uh, anybody besides Jim Gower that you have on your on our, on your radar right now? Um, the kind of newish, you know, somebody maybe we haven't heard about. Like for instance, I'm sorry, I'm through the question and I'm answering it. I I've been um, because of uh, Michael Silvabas program, Mauro Javier Cardenas, Cardenas, I believe. I've started reading some of his work. Uh, he's really doing some some interesting stuff with a sentence, um, and he's coming to the English language as kind of. Um, uh, it's kind of a new thing because he's, you know, he's not, he's an Ecuadorian American. Um, so he's got some of that excitement about language. What, what's, what's the possibility to, you know, what's, what is the novel's possibilities nowadays? He's thinking through it, yeah. you know? Um, sounds like my meat. Yeah. Exactly. There's one guy I, I, I really like, um, he's been self-publishing now. It's, his name is weird. It's, it's Re Young. It's capital R, capital E, Y, capital Y, O-U-N-G. He oh. published his first book with Dalkey Archive back in 1996 or so, and he's been doing a few more since then, and he's published two books this year. Um, 
and they're they're both wonderful. It's like you know Hunter S. Thompson, Pynchon slash uh, Gonzo novel writing. Oh, sign so me up. So he he's he's someone um, I'm keeping an eye on. But other than that, uh, I don't know. I, I still watch for you know, Mark Lehner has a new book coming out. What? In a few months. <laughs> yep. So a lot of I still there's people like that I keep an eye on. Richard Powers, whenever he comes up with a new well, book, yeah. I'll read that. Yeah. I haven't come across too many younger writers that really excite me in the way the older ones did, but um, maybe I'm just missing them. You know, I don't well, know. Just keep, so keep much an eye out. out. Yeah, you got to yeah, just keep yeah. uh, keep 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 that door open. That's I mean, that's really. I, I I I'm sorry, Rob. I keep I keep uh, monopolizing and jump in anytime you want. But I I just uh, want to mention something that I read in uh, an Olga Tokarczuk book, um, uh, "Plow Your Bones Over the Dead." Or or something like that. So the title always eludes me. But she she mentions um, perhaps with tongue in cheek a little bit um, this this testosterone autism that older men particularly. Uh, and by the way, I got some nasty reactions saying this is sexist nonsense on Twitter when I posted that quote. Um, that older men experience as you know they stop reading fiction. They and I've I've anecdotally I find that to be true. Uh, really. Men particularly seem to prefer going to nonfiction area, and she makes kind of light of it, but well, fun of it by saying, you know, they, they tend to start like you know biographies of great men or villains and develop an, <laughs> uh, an unusual interest in World War II. Um, all kind of rings true, but I, I do you find yourself um, going more no, towards? No, I haven't lost my, my yeah. I haven't lost my uh, devotion to fiction. Yeah, you know, I. I Occasionally, read a nonfiction book, but I'm still write, reading novels day and night, you know, and I I, I will till the day I die. It's still, yes, I haven't lost anything. Yeah. Yes, I wanted to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, I mean, I, I don't know if you I, maybe you haven't noticed that, but I have noticed that anecdotally. Just asking people, um, in general, you know, people I know, bookish people, they tend to just either go back to the classics or just reread one book over and over, and they they lose this kind of interest of of continuous exploration and see what's what's around the corner. I mean, there's there's danger with that too. You don't want to be totally on the surface like that, but you gotta you gotta keep half a nose, half an ear out, because yeah. you know, somebody's like, got to read those new big books. You know, yeah. they have to read themselves. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm there to help out. <laughs> I'll keep well, reading them. Yes, yes. Well, goodness gracious, I should we, Rob? You have anything? I mean, I'm I'm. Oh, oh, wait, David Markson. To just go back to David Markson. Um, you know how he's got some of the. Quotes in in the note card quartet where uh, they're not attributed. The quotes. Uh, um, uh, I I read this thing about Nabokov's pinchbeck prose, uh, and the the sort of the this the sum total of his work being uninteresting. And there's no attribu- attribution to this quote. Is it a quote or is this something that Marxen believed? Have you guys talked about that by any chance of his kind of view of Nabokov or is that somebody's some stupid critics? Because it's kind of made me look at Nabokov in a different light. I'm like, aha, that's why I can't really reread Nabokov that much nowadays, except a few things like Pale Fire, maybe, or Pneen or something like that. Really? Just two months ago, I just I reread, I read for the first time his collected stories, big fat book. Oh, those are awesome. Those and, are, those and, are I, I loved them, loved yeah, them. I mean, yeah. he's, you know... Um, that I don't, I'm not, I don't recognize that quote. I'd have to look into it. I will tell you one thing though. Um, uh, Markson once sent me several times annotated copies of all of his, uh, note card books in, in the oh. margins, he identified all those quotes <laughs> and, and I sold my Markson collection to Columbia university at that one several years ago. So some aspiring, uh, scholar can go there and they can, if they want, they can, uh, 
all his uh, identifications are written in the margins of those books there at Columbia. The next time I'm in New York, I will be doing a beeline <laughs> to Columbia. Yeah, because I really uh, want to know. I mean, I want to know if it's him or if it's or if it's. Uh, it makes a difference to me because you know I I really value his opinion. I mean, so is he making fun of the person who wrote this, or is he? Really, sorry, saying something about Nabokov that he kind of. I would guess he's making fun of whoever said that, but I, yeah. that's just a, a guess. I don't know. Yeah, but I want to know. I just want to know. Okay. <laughs> oh, John O'Brien. Sorry, sorry, Rob. John O'Brien with Dalkey Archive just recently passed away, right? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. How was your uh, relationship with him? Not good. Not good. <laughs> that's what I, I, heard. I left Dalkey because he he was. Uh, uh, you know, he's supposed to speak well of the dead, but you know, he was a the archetypal boss from hell. You know, he, oh, he was very difficult to work with, and not just for me. I mean, I, the same summer I left, 1996, two thirds of the staff quit, and all for the same reason. Nobody could stand working for him. And I've heard over the years that that feeling has uh, persisted. On the other hand, he did give me a, a job when I was broke and needed one, and I was at Dalkey Archive. I was able to publish a lot of my favorite writers, uh, especially in the like, between 1990 and 1995 or so. Well, two thirds of the list was my 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 acquisitions, books that I I liked, wanted to do. So I'm grateful. And the review of contemporary fiction, I was able to devote issues to Markson and Theroux and all these others. So yeah, I uh, yeah I owe him for that, I guess, but. Um, and yeah, Dalkey Archive, yeah, it has been one of the great small presses over the last, what, 30 years, 40 years? Uh, I think no one can deny that. So I have, as I said, I have mixed feelings. I mean, uh, a great press, bad publisher. I don't know. Yeah. Right, right. Well, you know, the, as long as that work got out there, because that's really the important thing. That's I mean, the main thing. And we, yeah. we thank you for suffering a bad boss and sticking with it. I mean, that's, uh, you know... Some things are just more important than than our, our own personal yeah, thing. Especially towards the end, there were a few books that I was tempted to quit several times. But there were a few books that really meant a lot to me, and I knew that I knew that if I were to quit, they would not get published. And I, you know, I stuck it out for them. And uh, is that the Ricky so, de Cornet, for instance, that one? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. There's uh, that, and there's uh, W. M. Spackman, oh, uh, which yes. came out after I left, and. Uh, what else was there? You know, uh, Karen Gordon. Karen Gordon had a book called The Red Shoes that I really loved. There's other things like that that would have just been dropped if I if I'd um, left. Right. So I, I stuck it out. Yeah. Plus, I didn't know what else to do with myself. I wanted to quit <laughs> there. I, I didn't have another job lined up, so I figured uh, John asked me to stay for about six months after I gave him my resignation notice. I thought, okay, well, this will give me a chance to see yeah. these other books through the press and give me a chance to think about what I want to do next. So, mixed feelings, as I say. Right. Well, you know, it's a person's life, it's always mixed, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I wanted to ask, I think, one more question, and then we should probably, um, we're starting to kind of hit our ceiling a bit here. But I, before you go, Stephen, I, I have to ask you, um, I really enjoyed the reviews you've had over the years um, with William T. Volman. And I guess I just have to ask, you know, if we're talking about, you know, uh, living writers under 60. I mean, I mean, isn't he the guy? I mean, I, I just feel like, you know, his seven dream series and the ambition and the output and the quality of the output uh, 200 years from now, I mean, maybe this is, this is the guy. I mean, I'm just curious, uh, how, how do you think about right. yeah. He's like a force of nature. I mean, it just, I, his productivity is just off the charts. I mean, I don't know if he's 
It's incredible, yeah. I, I don't like all of his books equally much. I don't anyone does, but uh, yeah, that seven dream sequence is extraordinary. I mean, there's hardly been anything like it in American literature. Yeah. And a lot of his individual novels are wonderful, and uh, his, his nonfiction, not all of which I've read, but that which I've read is incredible. I read all seven volumes of that, Rising Up and Falling Down. Incredible. Right? Rising Up, Going Down, whatever it's called. Yeah, in photocopied pages. <laughs> they, they sent me a big box of uh, paper and like a couple reams of paper. Anyway, so no, he's, yeah, he's one of the most, you know, the towering figures of our time. I totally agree with that. Even though you know, I didn't care for his last novel that much, the, was it Lucky Star? But, um, yeah, I, I agree. He's, he's, he's the man. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, that Rising Up and Rising Down, that seven-volume series on the history of violence, you, the only way you can find it now is it's like $600 uh, online oh. to buy the entire series. I mean, you can't just walk into a store and find those volumes. Yeah. Although there is a, um, uh, an abridged version um, that I, 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 want, yeah. I want to make some time to read. But, um, well, it's, it's been wonderful, and... I think we feel edified and, uh, you know, I, I, I hope the best for your book. And, and I want to remind uh, readers that and listeners that Alexander Theroux's uh, new book, it's called, or excuse me, Stephen Miller's <laughs> new book, it's called Alexander Theroux, A Fan's Notes, and it is uh, published by Zero Gram Press. Um, so please go to their uh, website to find that. You will and laugh and you will cry. Yeah. So, <laughs> so again, Stephen, uh, thank you so much. Really gracious of you to come and, and talk with us. And, and I can tell you there's sure. a lot of people uh, who follow us who are, are going to really um, pick through this conversation. We'll be really excited. So uh, thank you again. And uh, thank you, Roman. Uh, and thank you, Heston Hoffman, for your sound engineer duties. And just to remind people that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Yeah.